Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Bible, and we have it open to Revelation 7 this morning, verse 1. So we are casting vision as a church, as I just mentioned. And to do this, we are imagining our church in 10 years' time. And so if you could visit Hope in 2031, uh, what would you notice about our community? And what we've been doing is sharing what we hope that you would indeed notice about our church. And we think this is important because our picture of the future always sets the agenda for today. Our picture of the future always sets the agenda for today. So in the coming weeks and months and years, we are going to be steering our church towards this vision. In our prayer life, we're going to be asking God to open doors and to open pathways and to close doors and to close pathways in order to see this vision come along. Uh, Lately, we've been talking about God's vision for cross-cultural community. And I say God's vision, and I say that on purpose because cross-cultural community is not our idea. It's God's idea. And when God, in fact, casts vision to his church and his scriptures, this is the vision that we see, actually. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the last book of our Bibles called Revelation. Now, unfortunately, the book of Revelation gets a bad rap, I think, these days. It's either abused and taught like an esoteric uh, horoscope, or it's ignored altogether because we're too intimidated. But it doesn't have to be this way. Revelation is a gift to God's people. The book is a gift to God's people. And so if you have your Bibles open, I would just encourage you briefly to look at the very first chapter. Look at the very first chapter and and look at verse 3. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. That's you all. And who keep what is written in it. And so this is a gift from God to God's people. It's a blessing to anyone who hears it read aloud. And this is because Revelation is a lot of things. But one thing that it is, is it's a picture book. It's a picture book. Revelation is a picture book. Scholar Vern Poitras says that we treat Revelation like a puzzle book. When in fact it is a picture book. And in his experience as a scholar, no less, his experience is that children understand and apply Revelation better than adults do. By the book's end, children get it. In his words, they hate the dragon by the book's end. They root for the saints. And they love Jesus, the hero. And that's exactly why God gave John, the apostle, these images. This is a vision that John received while on the island of Patmos. And so... This is why God gave John these visions, and this is why John passed these pictures on to his church and why they have been sustained for us in our scriptures. See, Revelation is God literally casting vision. And in chapter 7, we get a vision 
of the gathered church in the new heavens and the new earth. And if that phrase is confusing you or new to you, the new heavens and the new earth, I like to say that often because that is the final picture that we have in our Bible. When sin and death is abolished, when we have our resurrection bodies, and when the whole cosmos, everything God created, is renewed and restored. And this picture of the future, of the gathered church in this new heavens and new earth, can be a gift to Hope Church if we allow it to set our agenda today. So let's read this text. And as I read, actually, I want you to picture this in your mind. That's how this letter is meant to function. So take a deep breath. Allow yourself to see this image with your mind's eye. The more vivid, the better. I'll read and you can follow along this way. We're in chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of those elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
Lord, would the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't feel I have to preach anymore after reading that. Two weeks ago, my family packed up for a week-long trip to Florida to visit my mom. And this is always the hardest part of vacation. It's the packing. But in this case, it was actually easy because we just imagined ourselves on the beach. We imagined ourselves by the pool. And so we basically just packed our backpacks with swimsuits. Easy. See, our vision for the future set the agenda for how we were to pack. And we do this all the time. When, we, when you all pack for a trip, you picture yourself, where you're going. You even check the weather forecast. And you, and you imagine yourself there. And then you plan and pack accordingly. Or if we're on a sports team, who's on a sports team or have been on one, you picture yourself playing in the championship game. And then what you do is you train accordingly. The coach asks, what will it take for us to compete at that level? To be in good enough shape. Where are we falling short? And the reason we do this is because we are story-shaped creatures. So many philosophers have asked the question, what makes us uniquely human? And some have said, it's our capacity to cook food. Others have said, it's our capacity to make and use tools. Others have said, it's our capacity to reason and to have logic. But some say it's our capacity to tell stories. As humans, we tell stories. I mean, just walk into a library for proof of this. But we're also, we also make sense of the world around us with stories. We're not just, in other words, story makers. We're story takers. We take on stories. We live inside of stories to make sense of our world. Which means we all have a final chapter in our hearts. No matter where you are spiritually, whether you consider yourself a Christian this morning or not, no matter who you are, and whether you admit it or not, even whether you know it or not, you have a final chapter deeply embedded into your heart. And guess what? You are, you are steering and directing and pointing your life toward that final chapter. So whatever is in the final episode of your life or what you think will be sets your agenda today. How you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you exert your energy, how you make your decisions, how you prioritize your relationships. It's all pointing to the future. It's all pointing to a vision. And that's why vision is powerful. It's almost as if we were designed to find our place in a story. And that makes sense if you hold that the Bible is the true story of the world, which I do. In other words, God is not only a world maker as creator, he is a storyteller. And we are made in his image, which explains why we tell stories. But it also explains why we are story shaped. The biblical word for this, if you want one, is the name of our church, hope. Hope is basically, if you want a kind of simple definition of what biblical hope is, hope is basically Lining up your today with God's tomorrow. That's essentially what hope is. Lining up your today with God's tomorrow. We allow God to tell us what the final chapter is going to be like. And then we adjust our lives accordingly. That's hope. 
In other words, to live with hope is to allow God's vision to set the agenda today. We've been talking about a vision for our church that includes cross-cultural community. In 10 years, we don't want to be a monocultural community, but a community that delights in and displays many different cultures united in our spirit-empowered worship of Jesus. And this isn't because it's a trending topic. It's because Revelation shows us it's the final destination for God's people. There is a line from the church today to the vision that we just heard read aloud. Which means that if we're not pursuing and prioritizing what we see in Revelation 7, then we are quite literally out of line. From time to time, my family enjoys something called geocaching. Do you guys know what geocaching is? Geocaching is basically a treasure hunt. If you don't know what it is, I really recommend it, especially if you have small children. And it's basically the person who hides the treasure or the geocache gives you a GPS coordinate. And then to find the treasure, you point your GPS compass, and that can be on your phone or you can have a fancier one. You point the compass to the location and you try to sort of stay on the line and find the treasure. If you've ever done this, you know how easy it is to just get offline a little bit. If you get off track just a little bit, you will miss the treasure. And that's how I want us to view cross-cultural community as a church. It is the GPS coordinate that God has given the church and he shows us in Revelation 7 how and where we should set our coordinates. And if we don't, then we're quite frankly lost. Revelation 7 is God himself casting vision for us. God knew that the small churches that John the Apostle pastored needed a vision. God knew that the church throughout history would need a vision, which is why God gave John these visions. The vision of the future, again, sets the agenda for today. It's for all Christians, for all time, the visions we see in the book of Revelation. And so I want to ask this question this morning. How does this picture of the future set the agenda for our small church this morning? Hope Church. I want to point out two ways. The first is that we must pursue Christ-centered worship. And the second is that we pursue cross-cultural community. So first, this vision of the future shows us that the church will always be, and therefore our church must always be, Christ-centered. And therefore, we have to be Christ-centered, pursue that. And that's our fullest life and the healthiest we will be. In one sense, this is a vision that we just read aloud of the massive global church across time and across space gathered together in the new heavens and new earth. But in another sense, it is about one thing, the lamb. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The Lamb, this Lamb, is Jesus. The Lamb must be, in other words, at the center of everything we do, which means we will do two things as a church. We will praise Jesus and we will persevere in Jesus. 
So first, we will praise Jesus as a church. Look at verse 10, the verse following. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Just try to imagine hearing this in your, in your, in your mind. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then it says in verse 17, their tears are being wiped away for good. Their thirst is being satisfied forever. The sun is not striking them down, which is a fantastic sermon illustration, by the way, as we're sitting out here. But just imagine the roar, the praise in this final picture. You know, many of you know I love soccer and especially international soccer. And part of the reason I love international soccer is the singing in the crowds. God designed us as worshipers, right? And so when a giant crowd gathers and roots their team on with loud singing in unison, it is an echo, it is a shadow, really, of what we are ultimately made for. And so to be a Christ-centered church means we will praise Christ. We will prepare our voices and our hearts for this moment that we see in Revelation 7. To be Christ-centered means we will praise Jesus. It also means we will persevere in Jesus. Remember, this is a vision. This is important. This is a vision given to struggling believers. You know, who's struggling out there? We all are struggling. Verse 13 says, who are these people? And verse 14 gives the answer. Take a look. They are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now, this word tribulation, this simply means hardship. It means like a grueling hard time. And this word applies to every generation, ancient, present, and future. Elizabeth Badenhop said something a few months ago at our prayer workshop that has stuck with me. She says, living in a fallen world is really, really hard. The biblical word for this truth is tribulation. And so this vision is given to us and to all of God's people, no matter what they are facing, whatever tribulation they have, in order, why? That we would stay in the game. That we would not give up the faith. That we would not give up on Jesus. We might want to give up the faith. We might want to give up on Jesus. They did too. And so God gives them this amazing vision. Why? So that they can keep putting one foot in front of the other. One baby step of faith at a time. How does God's vision do this? It shows us first that in Jesus we are secure. So verse 1 says that God is holding back the four winds for us. Uh, this is no breeze, okay? This is no breeze. What, what is symbolically being described here is like a tornado-level gust of, of destructive, gale-forced winds. If you've ever seen a town destroyed by a tornado, sometimes you see one house untouched amidst the rubble. That's what God is saying here. He's saying to the church, maybe not in body, because after all, the resurrection will fix that. But in soul, you are untouched by the worst that this world and you yourself can throw at you. Satan cannot harm your soul. God's holding them back. Sin cannot damn your soul. Circumstances cannot harm your soul. You are secure. And this keeps you in the game, doesn't it? 
It shows us we're secure. This vision shows us we're sealed. So in verse 3, it tells us that God is sealing who? The servants of our God on their foreheads. This is a reference to the prophet Ezekiel. Where God's people are marked very visibly and protected from all spiritual harm. Chapter 6, right before chapter 7 of Revelation, there's this onslaught of very, very hard things. Four horsemen symbolize conquest and slaughter and famine and terror. And if you read this text and really let the images do their work like they're supposed to, you will feel the terror. But God says right on the heels of that image, I'm holding them back. They cannot touch you. You are sealed. And in those days, that word meant authenticated, or it was a way of designating ownership. Think about that for a minute. Think about that for a minute. When God says, I'm sealing my servants on their foreheads, he's basically saying they're mine. I own them. And what do you think God is going to let happen to those he owns? Exactly. You're not going to get ripped away from his grip. You're sealed. The rest of the New Testament spells out what John gives us uh, through vision, and that's the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is sealed by the Holy Spirit. So that in Ephesians it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Do you see? The seal of the Holy Spirit enables us to keep walking because we have now a protection and ownership from God. And then thirdly, it shows us that we are saved in Christ. Saved. There's a word that can get sort of uh, um, watered down with use, but that's exactly what they are praising Jesus for is their salvation. So look at chapter six with me, if you would. At the very last verse, it says, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Is the last question in verse 6, in chapter 6. Who can stand? And so the question that that is left hanging in chapter 6 is, Who can stand before God's holy wrath? Who can actually stand in His presence without condemnation if God is holy? Well, chapter 7 answers the question boldly. In Christ... Listen to this. Anyone can stand, no matter your past, no matter who you are. If you're in Christ, you don't get a vote. You're protected, you're saved, and you can stand on that day. You can stand on that day. Look at the great multitude again in verse 9. It says they're clothed in white and they're holding palm branches. Now that in those days meant military victory. So they are saying in this image, we won, why? Because Jesus won. And how did Jesus win? Well, look at verse 14. The blood of the lamb. That's how Jesus won. Jesus won by dying. Jesus saved his people by dying. He won by losing in an earthly sense. And so we too win by losing. We admit our sin and our need. And we give up earthly definitions of victory. And we experience the abundant life in Jesus as we give up our sin and our need. We are victorious in Jesus, even as we lose. 
No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No more oppression because Jesus rescues us from oppressors. Verse 15 says we can, be, we can have access to God like the priests of the Old Testament without shame or without guilt. Why? Because the Lion of Judah became a slaughtered lamb in our place. Salvation belongs to the Lord, secured, sealed, and saved. And this alone will help us as a church persevere. I've heard our salvation in Christ compared to a burning field. Apparently, wisdom in the farming community says that the way you protect yourself from a burning field is not by running from it, because it will overtake you. So what do you do? You see it's coming, and you start a fire right where you're standing. And that means the coming fire won't pass already. It won't pass over this already burned spot in which you're standing. The way you stand in the midst of God's future judgment is not by running from it. It's by standing in Jesus who already took the fire in your place, who already is victorious. And so we stand and we worship and we praise Jesus. And that's what we see. The church across all of history and all of the globe doing, worshiping, 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 saying salvation belongs to the Lord over and over and over again. That is our stance as a church. Now, I know this sermon is about our horizontal relationships and our cross-cultural vision. And all I've talked about so far is the Lamb of Jesus, but that's exactly right. We will not achieve cross-cultural community if we're not Christ-centered. The Lamb alone creates this interdependence and difference. Different cultures, ethnic, economic, political, generational, can find unity in the Lamb. Which takes us to the second thing we would see if this vision were indeed to set the agenda for today. What else hope would we do? Well, we would pursue cross-cultural community. Look again at chapter 7. And what do you see in chapter 7? Well, it's a highly symbolic future vision of God's people in the new heavens and new earth. You already know that. We've been talking about that. And it's kind of cut into two halves. On the, there's the first half and there's the second half. And I bet as you noticed as you were reading it, maybe picturing it in your mind, each half is a little bit different. So people have asked, are they two different communities? And the answer is no. They are the same community looked at from two different angles. Do you guys know those stickers where if you move or if you move the sticker, the picture kind of changes? Do you know what I'm saying? That's the picture I have here. It's like John sees this and then he sees that. It's the same thing from a different angle, a different lens. And so the first picture with all the 12,000 from all the tribes of Israel, this is all of God's people from the perspective of Israel, how God chose for himself a particular people amidst the world. Starting in Genesis 12, when God called Abraham and told him to multiply into a great nation. And then the second picture, quite beautifully, is from the perspective of what happens next. The perspective of God's international, trans-ethnic mission. How God told Abram, after, hey, I'm going to make you Abraham, told Abraham that he would be a great nation, ethnos. Why? To bless all ethnos, all nations. The first picture you noticed is numbered. 
And I love how the second picture, it says, a great multitude that no one could number. I love that. I'm thinking of the stars that God had Abraham look at. There's going to be, there's going to be so many blessed by the particular Israel that you will not be able to number it. It'll be impossible to count. The first picture tells us that God knows your story and your name individually. The second picture reminds us that we are a part of a giant multitude that spans the globe and spans time. But notice what God says about the multitude here. And the phrase I want you to notice in the second picture is the phrase, every nation. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. The word here is ethnos, from which we get ethnicity. It doesn't mean political state. Our translation says nation. So our first response might be modern political nation states with borders and and, and rulers and stuff. But it's, it's broader than that. People group is a good way of understanding it. And as my friend Connie Anderson, who's taught me a lot in this way, ethnos is not the result of the fall, but God's idea. God says to Abraham that his people will bless the ethnos. When, when Jesus upends the temple, why? He says it's because the temple is meant to be a house of prayer for who? All the nations. Ethnos. And as we saw a couple weeks ago at Pentecost, God, the Holy Spirit, does not blunt ethnic identities in the church and he does not give them one sort of language kind of a bland language he speaks their language and he enables the people at Pentecost to speak each other's languages he loves and delights in the diverse languages and ethnicities that are present in that moment Connie also showed me that ethnic differences are carried through, as we see here, to the new heavens and the new earth. And we know Jesus says that marriage itself will not be carried through the new heavens and new earth. But our ethnicities and our languages and our cultures will be. That just shows you how much God delights in this. So we have an amazing vision of what the church will one day look like, a cross-cultural community centered on Christ. And this ought to encourage us and set our agenda as a church today. But as we talked about last week, this doesn't just trickle down. It takes work and repentance and restitution for all the ways that we make church community inhospitable to other cultures, for all the ways that we get off track. I grew up in the Midwest of the United States, Indiana, and then Ohio, and then Missouri, and now Ohio again. I was born in Chicago, so that's kind of where I grew up. And I always just assumed that my Midwestern accent was sort of neutral. Like I had the normal accent. And that was until I met someone from the, the Deep South who wanted to know where I was from and what my accent was. And I wanted to say, you're the one with the accent, not me. Or when I backpacked in Europe and everyone was like, yeah, who are you and where are you from? See, I'm afraid too many of us read this vision like that. Let me explain. 
We think our way of doing things in America or wherever is the normal way, the normative way. Whereas a predominantly Anglo denomination, we might be blind to all the assumptions and to all the cultural realities and all the racial habits that we are asking others to submit to when they come to our church. Because after all, this is just the normal way, right? But if this vision is to inform our church today, we will become cross-cultural, which means we will allow different cultures a place at the Lord's table. Erwin Entz says that too often churches see this vision and then gladly, maybe even passionately pursue diversity, but too often it's a shallow pursuit, he says. What Entz refers to as putting sprinkles on vanilla ice cream. But this vision is something different. It's deep. It's decentralized with regard to cultures because it's centered on Jesus. This isn't colorblindness, for instance. God is not colorblind. This vision sees and enjoys differences and yet is united in worship. That's what Revelation 7 tells us. Now, I don't have all the answers to how to make our church look more like Revelation 7. I just know that the shallow diversity approach is not it. And I know that giving up is not it. And that as a church over the next months and years and decade, we are going to do what we can to align ourselves with this future vision. Years ago, I was in Israel with my dad. And I went with a very... I'll say proper group of Anglicans from Pennsylvania. We read printed prayers together, which I love. We sang ancient hymns together, which I love. Lots of liturgies, love it. But I'll never forget though, when we went to the shore of Galilee, where apparently Jesus cooked fish for Peter. And I saw a group of men and women in a circle singing. And I noticed they were from Brazil because I could hear their beautiful language. And I was drawn in. I couldn't resist. I started standing on the outside of their circle. I recognized the melody of the worship song that they were singing. So I started to sing with them in my own language. There was this kind of beautiful melody, unity, even as the languages were different. But it wasn't distracting. It was just right. And then this is what happened. They noticed me. And instead of just noticing, they opened their circle. And they grabbed my shoulders. And they kept singing. And about two or three verses in, they changed to my language so that I could feel at home. And then they returned back to their language. Quite apart from the fact that I was standing where the resurrected Jesus was eating fish, it was a foretaste of heaven to me. It was a preview of what we just read. And what was most humbling about it for me is that they made room for me, and they didn't have to. They were self-aware enough to know what was challenging to me to join in. 
And they gladly, intuitively changed their worship, changed their heart language. So I could sing in my heart language. That's what it will take for hope to be a cross-cultural community. We must enlarge our circle. And then we have to be self-aware enough of all of our habits that might make it challenging for others to join in. And then we must be willing to change. Change the way we do things to make sure that others are singing in their heart language too. Revelation 7 sets the agenda, friends. We pursue this because God is doing it. It's a cross-cultural, Christ-centered community. Lord, would you make it so? Lord, we, we look at this vision that you cast for your people. And we ask just humbly now as a church that we would forever be Christ-centered. And that our circle would be enlarging day by day. And that we would look more and more like what you are growing us into. And we ask this in the name of our King and Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.